This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 420,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel at any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast to claim your offer. That's audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast, no dashes, no spaces. This week, my recommendation is Not Light, But Fire, How to Lead Meaningful Race Conversations by Matthew K. We're in one of those cultural historical moments when white people, and not just people of color, are talking about race. And since that topic is so incredibly charged in America, how you frame and facilitate those conversations is super important. Kay's book provides engaging anecdotes to support his recommended practices. You'll have a good laugh here and there, but at the same time, take him 100% seriously. No one has the magic guide to conversations about race, but Not Light But Fire is a very valuable resource, one I've used myself with some very good results. To check it out, go to audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast, no dashes, no spaces. One last time, that's audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast. Now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 2, Episode 10, Race and Justice in the Classroom. Yep, that's right, listeners. This week, we're going to talk about race. Not like we haven't done so before, but this time, we're going to unpack and break down into specifics this buzz phrase called culturally responsive teaching, which, if I had to explain it while standing on one leg means actively considering the impact of race in schools and classrooms. Now I'll sit down and go a little deeper with you, and I'll preface that deeper dive with a full admission that I'm still very much on my own journey to understand these issues and to make anti-racism a part of my daily practice. I'm still a work in progress, but I hope I do have something of value to share here. Because of this, I'm going to start by standing on the shoulders of giants beginning with some words from Melody Hobson, the former CEO of Ariel Investments, vice chair of Starbucks, the second richest African-American woman in America next to Oprah Winfrey, and incidentally, the wife of Star Wars creator George Lucas, which clearly was the best decision that man ever made. And it almost, almost makes up for The Phantom Menace. Almost. Anyway, Ms. Hobson has a great TED Talk that I've linked to on the website for this episode, but here I'm going to play you just one tiny bit of it. The first step to solving any problem is to not hide from it. And the first step to any form of action is awareness. You see, researchers have coined this term colorblindness to describe a learned behavior where we pretend that we don't notice race. If you happen to be surrounded by a bunch of people who look like you, that's purely accidental. Now, colorblindness, in my view, doesn't mean that there's no racial discrimination and there's Fairness, it doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't ensure it. In my view, colorblindness is very dangerous because it means we're ignoring the problem. I can identify with this picture. I was, and remain, a white guy, raised in a nice liberal Massachusetts home where I was taught to treat everyone the same, regardless of their race. And it took me years and a lot of work and experiences to develop an understanding of just how absurd that prospect actually is. Would we expect a doctor in a room full of patients, some with a head cold and some with bullet wounds, to treat every one of them the same? Would we expect a general whose army is facing infantry, tanks, and airplanes to just use the same tactic for dealing with all of them? 
Structural racism in America creates such radically different experiences, including schooling experiences, for people who are white and people who are of color, especially African Americans, that to teach in a classroom as if race wasn't an issue is like teaching in the middle of a volcano as if lava wasn't an issue. Enough with the metaphors, though. What do I mean by that on a very specific and practical level? Well, imagine you're a student in my class to whom I propose the following question on a test designed to assess your command of a concept called analogy. You know, comparing two or more seemingly different items that, in fact, have some sort of abstract connection between them, like I was just doing a few moments ago with my doctor in general and volcano analogies. Or in a much simpler form, an analogy can be a statement like, captain is to aeroplane, as engineer is to train. They might be in different vehicles, and one might be in the air, and one might be on tracks on the ground, but both of them play the same role, that is, the person charged with operating and steering the machine. So imagine the following question to assess your skill in understanding analogies is, when Shlomo describes the scene as being, quote, just like Kugel and Kreplach, unquote, he's probably referring to a feeling of a. disgust, b. nostalgia for home, c. excitement at the prospect of a new start, or d. utter confusion. Take your time. I'll wait. Now maybe you could figure it out from what little context I gave you. And maybe, if you're of Eastern European Jewish extraction like I am, this was clear from the beginning. But if neither of that's the case, and if this was not a test of your knowledge of Jewish culture, remember, it's designed to test your understanding of analogies, then you might have failed this question not due to a misunderstanding of the concept of analogy, or even of nostalgia, which was the correct answer, but rather due to a cultural mismatch between you and the test designer. Something the test designer thought to be universal knowledge was in fact culturally specific knowledge that privileged some groups over others because it wasn't formally taught as a part of the unit. From an assessment perspective, this interferes with your understanding of what the student actually knows and can do, and from a grading perspective, this puts certain students at a terrible disadvantage. Given the religious and cultural demographics of the United States, it's highly unlikely that that question would ever end up on a test anywhere. But back when the SAT test used to have analogy questions, they don't anymore, here was one of the classics. Runner is to marathon as A. Envoy is to embassy B. Martyr is to massacre C. Oarsman is to regatta D. Referee is to tournament or E. Horse is to stable now, I'm a graduate of an elite preparatory school, albeit as a scholarship recipient, so I had no problem answering C, oarsman is to regatta, because an oarsman is an athlete who propels a boat to win a race, a regatta, just like a runner runs a marathon. But seriously, if I'd never gone to that school and spent time around kids who rode crew, I'd have had no idea what a regatta was. In fact, when I first became a student there and heard other kids referring to crew, I thought they meant some sort of construction project was underway. My guess is that the designer of this question came from that wealthy white Protestant culture himself. I'm pretty sure it was a him, given the time period. And never even stopped to think that what was just common knowledge to him might be knowledge that was very specific to his particular racial and cultural group. It wasn't like he was intending to be racist or exclusionary. You don't know what you don't know, right? It's like that old joke about the turtle who swims by two fish and asks, Hey boys, how's the water? And the first fish says to the second, What the hell is water? We all, by default, are somewhat trapped in our own little pools of water. But the problem is that the citizens of one particular pool have historically, and even to a large extent, presently set school curriculum, instruction, and assessment for everybody else. Here's one of those places where race matters in schooling. 
in this case, the race of the test designers. And yes, whiteness is a race, insofar as anything is a race, since it's a socially constructed concept, but it's a socially constructed concept that has a hell of a lot of power and some very serious consequences. The Oarsman and Regatta question is an example, albeit a rather egregious one, of how this unconscious bias could render false results in a test. Remember, the teacher would judge a student to have not grasped the concept of analogy, when in fact the test was asking her to do two separate things understand analogies, and be familiar with cultural contexts that might or might not be immediately familiar to her. It's not like she can't learn it like you can learn anything else. But number one, she has to know she has to learn it. Remember, this is unconscious curriculum, not made explicit and clear to the students in the class. And number two, that creates one extra burden on her, or to turn it around, one extra advantage on someone who is white and from the culture that doesn't have to do the extra learning. But this question was from many decades ago, and these days such bias isn't quite as obvious. Nevertheless, it's still there. Here's a question from the early 2000s from the MCAS, the Massachusetts State Assessment that all students need to pass in order to graduate from high school. It's a poetry analysis question from the English language arts section, based on a famous Robert Frost poem, Acquainted with the Night. You can find a link on the podcast's webpage, but lucky you, you'll also get to hear me give a reading. Acquainted with the Night by Robert Frost. I have been one acquainted with the night. I have walked out in rain and back in rain. I have outwalked the furthest city light. I have looked down the saddest city lane. I have passed by the watchman on his beat and dropped my eyes, unwilling to explain. I have stood still and stopped the sound of feet when far away an interrupted cry came over houses from another street, but not to call me back or say goodbye. And further still, at an unearthly height, a luminary clock against the sky proclaimed the time was neither wrong nor right. I have been one acquainted with the night. Now here's a question that follows. Which is the most likely reason why the speaker of the poem refuses to meet the watchman's eyes in lines five and six? Remember, I have passed the watchman on his beat and dropped my eyes, unwilling to explain. The options were, A, he's late to an appointment, B, he feels disconnected from the rest of the community. C. He's afraid the watchman will arrest him. Or D. He's sick and cannot speak. Now, the correct answer was B. This is a poem in many ways about someone who is feeling disconnected from his community. But interestingly enough, African-American students who took this test disproportionately answered C. He's afraid the watchman will arrest him. Think of the different lived experiences with law enforcement that white versus black students tend to have, and think about how that might have affected students' analysis of that question and the proper response. Now, if there are any listeners who are at this point going, oh, come on, how can you be expected to anticipate all those possible pitfalls? Well, culturally responsive teaching means doing just that, stopping before and after you design any assessment to ask yourself, is this something that students with different experiences based on race or culture might take in very different ways that you didn't intend? It means doing that research and modifying your question if need be. And that's true if the you in the situation is a white teacher, a black teacher, an Asian teacher, or a teacher identifying in any other way. Because remember, we're all in our own ponds, and we all don't know what water is, what we don't know, until we really stop and make an effort to find out. But I will say that as a white teacher, I think I have to take more effort than a lot of other folks because I've just had so little practice in doing this. One of the privileges of whiteness is thinking your race is just the default, the norm. And as long as I keep doing that, it's going to limit my effectiveness as a teacher. Okay, fine, that's a thing you need to do with those crunchy subjective humanities courses, we might say. But what about math and science? 
It is tempting to consider the STEM fields, particularly math, to be somehow racially or culturally neutral. After all, numbers aren't socially constructed or racialized phenomena, and neither gravitational forces nor Newton's laws seem to be experienced differentially by people with different skin colors. Well, if we were ourselves just integers or subatomic particles, the discussion would end there. But since we're human beings, then our race and culture does influence everything we teach and learn, including math and science. Ethnomathematicians, and yes, that is an actual job you can have, demonstrate scores of examples of how culture and cultural mismatch can influence students' ability to learn mathematics and teachers' ability to assess that learning. Sometimes this is about engagement, like word problems that only use reference traditionally coded as, as white and Eurocentric, like teaching fractions through examples like slicing a pumpkin pie as opposed to, say, slicing up a guava. But it can also involve fundamental differences in teacher versus student understanding of the parameters and therefore the solutions to the same mathematical problem. Take this example from University of Wisconsin-Madison Professor William Tate's study of urban middle school students who have been presented with the following problem to solve. It costs $1.50 each way to ride the bus between home and work. A weekly pass is $16. Which is the better deal, paying the daily fare or buying the weekly pass? Well, as it turned out, African-American students who lived in cities disproportionately chose the weekly pass as the better deal, when the teacher clearly had the daily pass in mind as the correct answer. The students failed this item not because they didn't understand division or comparative evaluation, it was because they contextualized their thinking within the context of their lived experiences. That's what all of us do, when they thought and applied the multiple uses for the pass. Working seven days a week, and not just five days, as the teacher assumed. Going to two or more jobs using it for rides to visit relatives, social events, church, allowing relatives or friends to use the pass when they're not. The students supposedly failed this test item, even though their thinking was logical and accurate because, once again, the what-the-hell-is-water problem surfaced. Since most white people, and I hold myself as no exception, haven't had to think about race or their own racial identity, race is always something someone else has, at least that's how I was raised, then when white middle-class teachers build lessons and tests around the experiences and frames of reference of white middle-class people, then they just assume those experiences are normative. A large part of culturally responsive teaching, remember, involves a recognition, often by white teachers like me, that yes, we have a racial identity, one that gives us a particular set of experiences and positions in this country and that we have to make sure that we're identifying those experiences and positions as specific to our race. The impact of these specific experiences, of course, go well beyond how different people understand the same test question. What do I mean by that? I mean that there's this fact that I can get pulled over by a policeman on the road, which happens a lot because I live in Boston and fulfill the stereotype that Boston drivers are crazy. I don't have to worry about that policeman killing me. That's not an accident. It's because I'm white. George Floyd, Ahmed Arbery, Philando Castile, Eric Gardner, and an unforgivably long list of other African Americans were killed by police in encounters that, if the exact same circumstances were in place but the men in question were white, never would have happened. If I pass a counterfeit $20 bill at a store, that afternoon is not going to end with a policeman crushing the life out of my neck. That's a part of being white. It means you can walk around government buildings to protest social distancing regulations, armed with automatic weapons, and have nothing happen to you. And part of being black in our country means you can be unarmed at a peaceful protest and get shot with rubber bullets and tear gassed. There are a whole host of less extreme examples I could use, of course, like whiteness means not having to worry that someone in a store is going to tail me unless I'm doing something mega suspicious, not fearing that neighbors will call the police if they see me trying to get into my own home at night, 
being able to see people with my skin color in most positions of political and economic authority, having the history of people of my race taught in schools. And yeah, let's get back to schools. Unintentionally biased test questions are just the barest tip of the iceberg when it comes to the effect that race has in the classroom, and culturally responsive teaching means being consciously aware of that. Research has time and again demonstrated that students with very similar grades are far more likely to be recommended for gifted classes if they're white versus black or Latinx. Students committing the same disruptive behaviors are far more likely to be suspended or expelled if they're black or Latinx. The teachers and administrators in question might not be thinking consciously about race, but the numbers don't lie. Somehow they are making unfair decisions to reward and to punish based on race, and not being conscious of that is only going to perpetuate the problem. Zaretta Hammond, among others, have come up with all sorts of specific tools for identifying one's implicit unconscious biases, remember we all have them, and actively deprogramming yourself. It can be done, but it takes conscious work. Then there's this thing you may have heard of called the achievement gap, which refers to the disparity between African American, Latinx, and white students in terms of grades and standardized test scores, even when income and other factors are held constant. Race is not just a false positive for underlying socioeconomics, although certainly socioeconomics do play a role in the picture. But according to the Stanford Center for Policy Analysis, for example, even in states where the racial socioeconomic disparities are near zero, the achievement gaps are still present. This suggests that socioeconomic disparities are not the sole cause of racial achievement gaps. There's something about race operating here that needs to be consciously and formally addressed. Those gaps, by the way, persist into college admissions, even when grade point averages are held constant. Only 22% of high-performing, GPA of 3.5 or higher, white students end up at community colleges, as opposed to more competitive and challenging four-year schools, versus a third of African-American and Latinx students with similar grades. Economics play a role, but so does race. So yes, race plays a role in the classroom, and many students of color tend to be aware of that constantly. It's white teachers like me who really need to use that information, not ignore it, to inform their teaching, because yes, there are many research-backed strategies for narrowing the achievement gap, and none of them are rocket science. Number one, don't be racist. This doesn't mean just not slicking racial slurs. It means consciously taking steps to work past those what-the-hell-is-water defaults that many of us white people never consider, but which have massively harmful effects on the self-esteem and academic achievement of students of color. Here are some examples, in no particular order, of what that might look like broken down. In humanities classes, making sure reading lists and the historical figures and events you teach represent authors and figures from all races, not just during Black History Month and not with any special fanfare, just as a normal, integrated part of the curriculum. That legitimates them. Since ELA and history standards are often very skills-based, in some sense you can swap in and swap out all manner of content to help teach those skills. So make that content into a balanced diet, because even in 2020, most schools still just teach stories written by and history made by or focused on white folks. Intentionally or not, that sends a message of white superiority that neither students of color nor white students should be hearing. In math and science, it means spending some time talking about the origins of much of the mathematics we use today. It didn't all come from Europe. A lot of it came from India and the Arab world and Central Asia. It means hanging posters in your classroom representing a wide variety of races. Again, not with any specific fanfare. I mean, come on, how often do we say, hey kids, here's Jonas Salk, a white biologist. But we do that with biologists of color. We're talking about posters here, not radical changes to teaching methods. But research has demonstrated the if-you-can-see-it-you-can-be-it effect 
that having models of scientists and mathematicians in the classroom who look like you has on improving your own performance in those subjects. Openly acknowledging racial injustice also helps kids who have been living that injustice their whole lives to find validation and even strength, assuming their classes are teaching them tools to study and address those injustices as well. There's a whole field of social justice mathematics that teaches and applies math skills to racial inequities in healthcare or housing. So much of these problems and the ways to address these problems involve numbers, and successful math education is always about application. So, pardon the expression, put two and two together. In any subject area, teachers need to know who their students are. We need to undertake as much effort as necessary to learn how to properly pronounce the names and use that proper pronunciation of the names of every student in our class. We need to take some time to find out what their personal heritage is and to seed culturally relevant information from that heritage in an authentic way into the curriculum we create for class. Now, I'm using this word we a lot, which carries a certain assumption that at minimum we have this presumptive shared identity as educators, but that assumption may not be accurate depending on who's listening. It raises the idea that teachers need to be careful about assuming we are all the same we. In other words, I have to monitor my statements carefully to make sure I am not assuming everyone in the room has the same cultural reference or racial or ethnic identity as I do. Just as most teachers are trained to use the phrase parent or guardian instead of assuming all students live with their parents, teachers, especially white teachers like me, need to think carefully about phrases like, when your ancestors decided to come to this country. Well, some of my students' ancestors were brought here in chains against their will, and others, well, they came across the land bridge thousands of years ago. Similarly, assuming that all of my students listen to the same music or have a shared knowledge of TV characters or have the same standard of living always runs the risk of marginalizing some individuals. Teachers of all races need to be particularly careful with unconsciously conflating your Asian, Latinx, and other biracial students with your white students, even if those students appear to be white presenting. Light-skinned and or economically prosperous members of these groups often end up being swept up into the default assumptions of the white experience, and that further marginalizes them. Find out who your students actually identify with being. Here's a big one. We can't ask our students to be spokespeople for whatever group they do identify with. If they volunteer to be an expert of sorts, that's one thing, although even then, can any of us really speak for anything beyond our own personal experience? But being the representative for your race can be a really stressful and insulting experience. Even as a white guy, I've experienced something like this. When I was growing up, I tended to be the only Jewish kid in my classes, and I dreaded moments when inevitably the Holocaust would get mentioned, and I knew it was just a matter of time before the teacher turned to me and said some version of, so, David, what did the Jews think about this? Um, it was bad. As a white teacher, I do try to bring up issues of racial justice in the classroom, and when I do that, I have to be aware that discussions of race and inequity, especially if it's in a majority white classroom, can raise anxiety and activate trauma for students of color in a way that, as a white educator, I might not be able to understand. First and foremost, my job is to listen and validate any fear, distress, or anxiety they report to me. It also means not expecting or pushing my students of color to always be in a place where they can immediately open up to me as a white teacher about how they're feeling about a certain issue, or even how they're feeling in class. And I've had more success with asking them if there's someone they want to talk to and facilitating their ability to reach that person. I can't ever expect my students of color to be responsible for making suggestions as to how to create a safer and more just environment. That's my job as a teacher, not theirs. But if they do make suggestions, I consider them seriously. One of the biggest things I can do as a white teacher to be culturally responsive is to not be defensive. If a student expresses a concern to me about something I've done or said as being racist, I need to seriously consider whether they might be right. 
And that's an uncomfortable process, but I can't teach critical thinking while holding myself exempt from it. Talking about race and justice in the classroom or anywhere in America can get very charged and uncomfortable, and I can't recommend enough reading a book like Michael Kay's Not Light But Fire that takes you through specific routines and procedures to help prepare your students and yourselves to have meaningful and productive discussions about race. So-called pop-up race conversations, says Kay, can be as dangerous as ignoring race entirely. But teachers have to start somewhere. Even teachers like myself, who are white and, and haven't had as much experience as you would like in considering the full impact of race. Therefore, as a white guy and as a teacher in general, one of the most important things I can do is admit when I screw up. And I have, as every teacher has and will continue to do, I need to take responsibility, apologize if necessary, and resolve to do better. I always tell my graduate students that, as counterintuitive as it might seem, especially for a young teacher trying to establish their legitimacy, Admission of our own humanity and continuing evolution actually makes us look confident and strong. It's the fragile person who never dares to admit mistakes. Doing so shows students that you care enough about them to change what you're doing if you realize you're doing something that poorly serves them. That their needs matter more than your vanity. If any of my listeners are thinking at this point that this culturally responsive teaching thing sounds like a lot of work, well, you're right. It is. But it's work that not only benefits students of color, it benefits all students, including white students. Think back to those math problems about the bus passes. Sure, white students likely experience no or at least fewer cultural mismatches in school because presumably their assumptions and those of their instructors and textbooks and test designers are all aligned. But this also means that they miss out on potential opportunities to think divergently about mathematical processes. If teachers want to prepare their students for the kind of analytic thinking that will help them use math to solve complex, real-world problems that don't have easy answers in the back of the book, then they need to help those students question the parameters and assumptions of those problems, or else they too will risk using correct math skills incorrectly when the time comes for actual application of those skills. In short, having lots of privilege can make it harder for you to think outside of the box, and so many of the challenges in the real world require out-of-the-box thinking. In other classes, having white kids learn about authors, historical figures, and scientists of color, and the different perspectives they bring, is important for their future success, too. Research demonstrates that diverse teams are better at solving complex problems, and if you're white and grow up without exposure to or practice, practice interacting with people of color, and in our segregated schools that's very common, then you're going to be at a huge disadvantage working on a diverse team on a project in college or in the work world. In today's America, with fewer than 60% of the population identifying as white, white folks raised without the skills to interact with unfamiliar others may be left behind. On a much larger level, if society's reins remain in the hands of those who cannot draw upon the full spectrum of ideas from a diverse populace, we are all in trouble. You don't solve problems like pandemics and global climate change without drawing on a huge variety of different views, without acknowledging that your views are just some of many, and that just maybe at times, those views might not be as useful as the views of someone with another kind of experience. So you see that? What's at stake with culturally responsive teaching isn't just the academic achievement of students of color, although that's super important in and of itself. What's at stake is, no exaggeration, the fate of the entire world. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, 
and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, and the grand tradition of underfunded public schools will be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great. Then you get a treat. Here's this episode's education fun fact. The current record holder for the longest name of a school in an English-speaking country is the UK's Knowsley Park Centre for Learning serving Prescott, Whitston, and the wider community. Fitting that onto an athletic t-shirt must be a challenge, so good luck, folks. Bye-bye.